Welcome back to Teaching Matters, the University of Edinburgh's hub for discussing, promoting, and showcasing teaching and learning at the university. We are a blog, website, podcast, and maybe most importantly, a small group of people passionate about providing platforms for conversations surrounding teaching and learning. This is from our Learning and Teaching Conference series. The Institute for Academic Development's own Kathy Bobel ran the conference and did an absolutely smashing job. I'll let her introduce the series. My name's Kathy Bobel. I'm a senior lecturer in student engagement based in the Institute for Academic Development. I was the lead for the University of Edinburgh's 2021 Learning and Teaching Conference, and we attracted a vast range of fantastic presentations covering work from across the university at the conference this year. And I'm delighted to say that the Teaching Matters will be highlighting many of the presentations and some of the contributors who who were sharing their work more widely at the university over the coming weeks and months. We had presentations that covered a wide range of topics, including building community, innovation in science teaching, equality, diversity, inclusion and social justice, experiential place-based and problem-based learning, assessment and feedback for the future, new lessons in digital teaching, insights from hybrid and online learning, student engagement and involvement, and interdisciplinary learning and teaching local and global challenges. So there's something there I hope for everybody in terms of the topics and the spread of great practice from across the university that colleagues are sharing. So I really encourage you to dip in to some of these contributions and I hope that you'll find something that's of interest and relevance to your practice. Today's episode comes from a presentation given by Neil Spears, a widening participation manager, practitioner, and researcher at the University of Edinburgh. It's called The Hidden Curriculum for Working Class Students. I'm Eric Berger, a final year mathematics student, and I'll be walking you through his presentation. Neil wonderfully deconstructs what a hidden curriculum is, how we facilitate it, and why we do. Throughout, he poses fascinating questions. Is education inherently political? How can injustices at university become unnoticed and unaddressed? He goes on to explain how this curriculum doesn't serve working class students and provides an inspiring call to action for anyone in the learning and teaching environment. Possibly my favorite thing about this riveting conversation is its call to action. Typically, when I learn of injustices, I feel powerless and maybe too small to make a difference. But Neil does an incredible job of empowering the individual through tangible actions we can take to support working class students. So without further ado, I'll let him take it away. This particular paper I'm presenting this afternoon to you is actually based on a bit of work that uh, was published last year. It was in a book that the uh, Advanced HE uh, published called The Hidden Curriculum of Higher Education, which I'd I'd recommend itself, Uh, a very interesting book to have a look through. And so this particular paper is the the chapter that I was asked to contribute to there. So that's where we are. If you want to go into this in a little bit more detail, perhaps, obviously within the 20 minutes that we have here and some time for questions after, we won't be able to critically engage at the level that we are with a little bit of writing. So I would urge you perhaps to have a look at that afterwards. Uh, should it be of interest? And indeed, I hope it is of interest. So we'll make a start then, because I've got to see we have four questions we're going to go through this afternoon. And the very first question would be, 
what is the hidden curriculum all about? That's maybe the first question you have for me. Um, if it's not, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, but that's the first one we're going to go with anyway. So let's have a think about it. So we might think of the hidden curriculum as the implicit ways of thinking about the world, the implicit set of values and understandings, the implicit ideas and perspectives that are embedded in the objects, the practices, the transmission, and social structures of formal education. Notice, just to make sure everybody's clear on that, obviously, we're not talking syllabus is not curriculum, syllabus is part of it, okay? But the knowledge specific, the subject specific knowledge, notice it's not here, okay? Okay, this is the hidden curriculum. And as a result of that which is hidden, what we see is that the hidden curriculum, which is facilitated by teachers in all educational sectors, you, me, everybody, somebody in primary school and secondary school in, uh, in, in a college, wherever they are, we all facilitate it. And what do we do by that? Well, we deliver social class oriented subtexts and meanings by the delivery of ways of thinking about the world sets of values and understandings, ideas and perspectives, all of which are given legitimacy through formal education. And in turn, these subtexts that are delivered, these in turn will facilitate the construction of knowledge and facilitate the construction of behaviours, leading ultimately to compliance with dominant ideologies. And this is where the curriculum is very much part of the notion of social reproduction, okay? And this is what we're talking about here with regards to the hidden curriculum and the way that it contributes to social reproduction. What, what is it that we're thinking about with this hidden curriculum? Well, it's delivered by a particular habitus, okay? And that particular habitus that delivers the hidden curriculum, okay, then as a result transmits that particular habitus. And you get the notion here of the reproductive cycle we're talking about, okay? And that cycle is a classed process, okay? Social class is what we're talking about here. So it's a classed process. But the big question is, and I think there was questions beforehand a little bit about it, and you're probably saying to me, Neil, what on earth is habitus? Well, it's one of Bordeaux's more enigmatic concepts, so it is perhaps, and a few of his are quite enigmatic, actually, and they can be quite difficult to dig into. But once you get there, they are really beautiful and they are immensely powerful as tools to help us to understand the social world. So let's think a little bit about it then, shall we? So we could think about habitus being a system, and we all have a habitus. I have a habitus, okay, and you do, okay, we all do, okay. And what does that habitus look like? Well, it's a system that comprises of our dispositions which generate our perceptions, comprises of our appreciations, our understandings, our opinions, and our practices, what we do, okay? Now, all of that, it's, it's, it's who we are, it's our, it's our view of life, but it's also our experience of life, because Bordeaux makes it very clear that habitus is actually structured by our past and present. So, for example, our family upbringing, or as I've also written here, educational experiences, or our social class, will influence our dispositions and perceptions. My social class will influence my appreciations, my understandings, my opinions, and my practices. But in addition to the fact that structure comes, is, 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 is generates this structure, it also is predicting the future, okay? Because it's structuring as well. So a habitus is saying, well, 
you know, our past has brought us to here, but actually it will now, our present will now influence our future. So our current appreciations, understandings, opinions, and practices will influence our future, okay? And what we have is, we have a privileged habitus, okay? A privileged selection of dispositions, appreciations, understandings, etc., that are delivering the hidden curriculum and participating in the notion of social reproduction. And that's what we see happening. Neil does the excellent work of deconstructing the hidden curriculum. It starts with each individual person's dispositions, which are formed by their life experiences. Each individual's disposition is part of their habitus, which can combine with others to create a collective habitus. As habitus is a property of class, the university habitus is a privileged one, which means it may not tend to serve those that are not from a place of privilege. What does this mean for how we approach teaching and learning? And does this mean that we're mixing education with politics? Now, this is a, a, a little bit of work from Roberts from 2013 in a beautiful text um, where he talks poetically very often, actually, about the great work of Paulo Freire. And I wanted to read this specifically to you because you may be thinking, Neil, do we really need to talk about this? Is this is actually, we're just, this is just learning and teaching we're involved in. Why is this important? Well, Roberts writes, the political nature of education is evident in the views both teachers and students bring with them to our learning situation, in the way teaching and learning occur, in the forms of assessment and evaluation conducted, in the funding arrangements for an educational process, in the physical layout of teaching and learning environment, in what appears and does not appear in the curriculum, in the justifications provided for education, in the reading and writing completed or recommended, in the value or lack of placed on credentials and qualifications, in the language of instruction, and in the government policies that frame the learning process, among other ways. And as Roberts writes, indeed, in the latter part of his career, Paulo Freire came to believe that education is politics. And this is something we cannot escape. Education is politics. Roberts continues to talk a little bit about the Freirean approach, which is the compassionate and beautiful approach that I hope you'll see as we go through this. Uh, Roberts writes, a crucial element in conservative assaults on reforms to university curricula was that charge that education had become political and ideologically driven. Roberts goes on to say this accusation, Freer would have argued, betrays either a naive understanding of the political dimensions to education, or perhaps a mischievous attempt to disguise the politics of traditional pedagogical practices. Freire, along with dozens of scholars in critical pedagogy and the sociology of education, have convincingly demonstrated that teaching is always a political process. Indeed, Roberts goes on to say, from a Freirean point of view, it is not a matter of asking whether we ought to or ought not to be political as a teacher, but rather of deciding what kind of politics to foster in the classroom. Because if we think we're starting from a neutral venue or a neutral site, and somehow what I'm suggesting here in a Freirean manner 
is to become political. That's not the case in the slightest. We're already gone from there. We're not in a neutral venue or a neutral site at the moment. Curriculum isn't neutral. Pedagogical practice isn't neutral. And so if education is politics and teaching is a part of a political process, then we need to be perhaps aware of that. And the Freirean approach is a great way to engage with that. So I hope we've started to think a little bit about what the curricul hidden curriculum actually is, okay? So this is, this is a bit of a primer today to get us started in thinking in this way. But the next question, maybe you're thinking, you're saying, Neil, why on earth are Doxa and Illusio relevant to me? I'm pretty sure that's the question you had when you're having your lunch. You're thinking that, aren't you? Well, I'm going to answer that for you now. And I think we start again with two more of, of Bordeaux's critical tools, one being Doxa. And Bordeaux would tell us that Doxa's, what is essential goes without saying, because it comes without saying. Bordeaux goes on to say to us, the established cosmological and political order is perceived, not as arbitrary, that is, as one possible order amongst others, but is self-evident, a natural order which goes without saying and therefore goes unquestioned. Furthermore, the agent's aspirations have the same limits as the objective conditions of which they are the product. We are the product of those objective con uh, conditions. So how on earth does this prove that doxa is important? Well, they're taken for granted, they're self-evident, they're critically unquestioned. It's the hidden curriculum. The hidden curriculum is a doxa, okay? And undergraduate, let's think of an example. Let's try to illustrate this now a little bit. So the undergraduate student, the college student, school pupil, whoever it might be, they fail their academic endeavors and they are considered simply, well, they're not very academic. They failed the game. This is to employ more language that Bordeaux would use of the game. Education we can think of as the game. But this is the doxic assumption rather than the critical approach. And that critical approach would say, let's question the nature of the game. Because this game appears to be fixed in favour of a dominant class and culture. So maybe this, this pupil, this student, maybe they didn't fail it. Maybe they were set up to fail for the start. It wasn't written by them or for them. It was written by an owner of a different habitus for those with a similar habitus. But why do we play this game? Okay. Why do we just, why do we go along with it? You know, we, we've seen the hidden curriculum as a doxa. Why do we go along with that? Okay. And I ask the question of, you know, what is it that seduces me and you to take part in this game? Well, this game is one that reproduces social inequality through the reproduction of the hierarchy of positions of capitalists. Why would we take part in that? Why would we do that? Bordeaux says a way to understand this is to think of something called illusio. And illusio would be the fact of being caught up in and by the game, of believing the game is worth the candle, or more simply, that playing is worth the effort, benefits that I can seek from it. So the success that individuals might generate for taking part in this, okay, the various forms of capital, okay, that can flow from success, okay means that you have the game under your skin, okay? And we all take part, though, it would appear, regardless of whether all of us players have agreed that the game should be played. And indeed, whether we agree with the rules of the game, are they fair? Bordeaux goes on to say, it is therefore illusio which prevents me and you from being cynical about the game being played, because we take the game seriously. So why are Doxa and Illusio relevant to me? I hope you can start to see. 
we have to identify dots and challenge critically when we think, oh, should we really take that for granted? Oh, this is how we do it. It's always been like that. No, let's critically question that. That's fair. And why am I involved in this? Why am I adding to this reproductive cycle? The illusio that has got the game under the skin. I need to think about that. Neil introduces the concepts of doxa and illusio, in which doxa can be seen as what we consider to be self-evident, something that goes without saying, and with illusio being the idea of getting caught up in the middle of something, or by something. In this case, the doxa, what goes without saying, is the hidden curriculum, and the illusio, the game we're caught up in, is a teaching and learning experience that gives advantage to those from places of privilege over those from working class backgrounds. The fact that we're in this game is what deters us from thinking critically about it. But what happens when we do? How do I do more about this? How do I start to act critically? That's the third question to start with. How do you act critically? Well, the starting point is it's really quite difficult. We have to acknowledge that I am and you are complicit in the transmission in this doxic message of the hidden curriculum. We have to start there. This hidden curriculum in plain sight and university campuses, okay, which is part of the classism that is rife across campus, our own and any across the world. And it does not help to develop this culture of understanding of compassion and desire to not just provide equity of access, but equity of experience and participation for everyone. In one study, one academic noted that part of surviving an institution and making it in a profession is learning to ignore or to become part of it. And so that all of this suddenly dissolves, it becomes invisible. So then we also become part of the institution, part of the institution's habitus in that sense. And then the danger is what? Well, we see the neoliberal careerist take over campus life. And we don't want that. That's not what, that's not the game, as, as Bordeaux would say, that we're really invested in. When we really honestly think about it. And we must get away from this focus of the gaining of symbolic economic capital, you know? Where is that great role that we're called to be the public intellectual that is part of this struggle to expose and remove, for example, the hidden curriculum? Because you know what? It's 2.47 and every single one of us here right now can say, you know what, Neil? We are going to choose not to allow the hidden curriculum to operate in plain sight. We're going to challenge this doctor. We could say, Neil, we are all going to choose to believe in the emancipatory nature of education and not to facilitate its role in social reproduction. We could all now decide. We can choose to reach out in solidarity with our working class students in a generous and compassionate manner. You see, powerful structures want us to believe that we can't do anything unless they implement massive powerful policy changes. In actual fact, it's not necessarily the truth. We, through our own actions, can actually change things now without any massive policy of structure changes. It sometimes feels like we're struggling to breathe where we are at the moment. We can't affect change. It's too big, it's too powerful, but actually we can. And let's think about that because that's what we're going to see. Let's look at it. What can we do? Okay. 
Because we're in institutions in the moment, Bloom refers beautifully to our universities' wretched parodies of what they're supposed to be, our veritable monuments of newspeak and doublethink. And Gary Mullins, in a, in, in a recent article, when they were interviewing some academic colleagues, he said, you need to be conscious when you're challenging the system so that you're not doing it kind of naively. Through a lot of negotiations and struggles, this particular member of staff had said, people like myself have carved out spaces to do a different kind of work. Carve out spaces. And the question then is how you actually operate in those spaces. Let's answer the question. So what's the first thing we can do today? We can actually do this, okay? And I would draw back to the Freudian notion of conscientization. This is what we need, okay? And it is the process of developing a critical awareness of your social reality through reflection and action. And Freer says that conscientization is the most critical approach to reality, stripping it down so as to get to know the myths of the doctor that deceive and perpetrate the dominating structure. Let's agree to do that. It's a personal moment. It takes time to reflect and to act and an honest assessment of our social reality on campus, in and around to start with. We could do this. We could agree to do this right now. So Neil, what's the second thing that we can do? I'm drawing again to Roberts, okay? And another wonderful quote here from looking at Freire and Marrow, where Freire makes it clear, however, that there are multiple ways of participating in the process of social transformation. And sometimes the most effective approaches in the long term are the quiet, unnoticed forms of gentle intellectual subversion, practiced by educationalists and others as they go about their daily work. Roberts goes on to say, in other cases, you know, protest demonstrations, union activities, letters to members of parliament, a critical journalism might be appropriate. But Freire's point is that whatever we do, we cannot remain neutral. As intellectuals, as educationalists, we're always being political beings. We're always taking a stand, even this is an implied one, whether we acknowledge it or not. So, what can we do to address the hidden curriculum? Neil lays out a brilliant roadmap that revolves around critical awareness. He asserts that we must first be conscious of the hidden curriculum which does not serve working class students. Awareness is the first step, which follows with a critical mindset. Then, we, as individuals, can shape our daily practices so that they no longer serve the hidden curriculum. This is the political stand we take. One thing I loved about Neil's call to action is its empowerment. Typically, when learning of injustices, I feel powerless. But Neil is suggesting that we can address this injustice through developing a critical awareness of our own daily practices. That's doable and inspiring. I'll let Neil finish off as he demonstrates how our conscientization can benefit working class students. And if I can speak in a kind of semi kind of autoethnographical for, for a moment, I've spent the entirety of my professional life acting in a quiet, unnoticed moments of compassion and generosity and solidarity to work with students. And while it will not guarantee you lofty career ambitions. It will be a matter of solidarity and social justice. And in that moment between the students that you work with individually or in small groups, you will see the value both in each other's eyes 
and in the way that you can then see the development of individual students to become who they were always meant to be. And that is the greatest worthwhile we can have, I would argue. Absolutely. There's an element of scholarship that's required in this area, just like our research practice would be. But the value is there. Let's think of conscientization and let's think of the quite unnoticed forms of assistance that we provide to our students. Let's start to value that. Perhaps your school says that doesn't matter. We can't record it. No, we can't measure it, so it doesn't matter. That's not true. Let's change that narrative. We could decide to do that right now. And then we can impact the working class student experience. And just as I finish off here, this hidden curriculum, though, has an alignment process that our working class students then find that it requires submitting to a distinct class-based consciousness in order to require symbolic capital. And elements of this hidden curriculum ultimately serve not only in reproduction of both hierarchy and marginalization, but alienation. And as Scott says, you don't always have to believe in the existence of class, nor constantly think in that way for class to be real and about social division. The system of class situations is not dependent on my awareness or your awareness of it. Because it's happening right now as I speak. F. Scott Fitzgerald spoke lyrically about that was always my experience. A poor boy in a rich town, a poor boy in a rich boy's school, a poor boy in a rich man's club at Princeton. The daily lived experience. I could talk to you for years about the students that I've spoken with and quote them left, right and centre to you to get that kind of message across of their daily lived experiences. Diane Ray points out that students might complete their undergraduate studies but with a strong sense of being bruised and battered by the whole experience. One student said once, Neil, it's like when you get the emails that say come and volunteer to save turtles and pay 4,000 to do it. You know, it's like the richest kids will always get the best. I can't even afford to volunteer because then I wouldn't have any money in the summer. And as Diane Ray says that these kind of forces of circumstances mean that our working class students are often onlookers, onlookers in student life. Or participants often in the fringe, but onlookers. And to finish off, in Muriel Sparks' novel, The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, her lead character says, and many times through her life, Sandy knew with a shock that speaking to people whose childhood had been in Edinburgh, that there were other people's Edinburghs quite different from hers, and with which she held only the names of districts and streets and monuments in common. I would urge you perhaps to reflect on your students, Edinburgh, and their experiences. And with those actions that I've talked about, a way that we can act critically, we can find ourselves in a place of radical hope, radical hope that resists the fixivity of interpretation, that can turn it into despair and refuses perhaps to abandon moral principles that generate it and prevent it from being merely wishful thinking. So, we've reached the end, haven't we? No, we haven't. We've only just begun. So let's begin right now. So, we start with the premise that good teachers are intellectually curious about pedagogy. Let's get started. A massive thank you to Neil Spears for his informative and inspiring presentation on the Hidden Curriculum and for allowing it to be translated into a Teaching Matters podcast episode. Teaching Matters is brought to you by the University of Edinburgh's Institute for Academic Development. 
Episodes release every Wednesday. Please follow or subscribe on whatever platform you use to listen and leave a five-star review if you enjoyed today's episode. We'd also be delighted for you to join the conversation. Please feel free to comment on our blog or email us at teachingmatters@ed.ac.uk. Music for today's show is provided by Tune Sounds. Until next time, stay curious.